90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well, John. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. Summer's winding down. The, everybody's back in school. Things are getting a little bit closer to normal, and I might actually be able to get some coding done. <laughs> um, yeah, I will say my kid went back to school. That was pretty exciting. And the temperatures are back up here to normal summer temperatures, which I'm not happy about. But you know that already. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's, uh, it's grant season coming up soon, so that will be another... <laughs> large diversion oh so true yeah um i'm teaching a new class this semester that i'm super nervous about teaching so that's that's going to be a little bit stressful but um that's partly why we're doing the show that we're doing today because i like to make myself get ready for class by doing shows about what we're going to talk oh. about <laughs> <laughs> teaching preparation right right exactly and so with that we're super excited to have dr lynn sorrigan with us today and she's going to talk about a lot of her paleoclimate research so welcome lynn thank you i'm very glad to be here so lynn could you tell us a little about your your background sort of how you got into geology and how you got to where you are now okay so i um i grew up in the suburbs of southern california just north of la so i ended up at attending UCLA and uh, went in as a geology major and um, became interested enough in that that I wanted to go on for a PhD and so did so at the University of Arizona um, and got the PhD and then did, uh, I suppose what you might call a non-traditional postdoc in the industry. <laughs> so um, spent a couple of years working for a now defunct company called Amico Production Company in Houston. Um, and then I joined the University of Oklahoma and have been here since. And so you said you went in as a geology major. What was it about geology that got you started in that field in the first place? Uh, well, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> <laughs> the first rock you ever licked. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that, that would take me to my dad's uh, rock wall slash fence story, probably. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm, um, I'm the youngest of a long line, so my parents were older when I was born. Um, so I had to actually, I've, I've heard these stories apocryphally, but I think not apocryphally <laughs> through my older brothers and sisters, but my dad was a, um, a salesman in the 1950s and early 60s before he, ulti he ultimately became a photographer after that. But he was, he was a salesman of restaurant wear, you know, that, like that he those really heavy duty plates and saucers and things that people use in restaurants that if you, if you throw on the floor, they hardly break. And, um, <laughs> right. and he used to, his route was, uh, took him up towards Edwards Air Force Base and China Lake and, you know, towns like Mojave and, and the Mojave Desert. This is, you know, north of L.A. along, you know, the Antelope Freeway and 395 and places like that. And he would go and, and do his uh, salesman route and, and hand out samples and so forth. And on the way back, um, he would dump out any remaining dishes in the desert and fill up the back of the 1959 Ford station wagon with rocks <laughs> oh my gosh. and it was because when they when they moved um when they moved into uh, our suburban house in la there was no there was an alleyway behind the house in the back of the house but there was no fence and most people put up these big pink block 
cement, you know, cement block fences. And my dad ended up building this incredible fence that's a work of art, and it's still there today. And it's it's um, it's these pillars made of stone and, and a base, of maybe a few feet or so made of stone, and then grape uh, grape stakes in between. And and the stones, the rocks that he picked up were the rocks that he picked up in the Mojave, and they're they're not just any old rock. They're they're he must have. Uh, you know, sat there and really looked at, at things and shows this and that. So there's petrified wood and there's magnetite and there's ore minerals and there's, you know, obsidian and, and banded, banded tufts and, you know, all this really cool stuff and that makes up this rock wall. And uh, anyway, I, I kind of was always mesmerized with that, <laughs> with that well, fence, <laughs> rock wall, whatever. Um, you I know, and it. then seventh grade, science loved you know i loved mica like peeling the sheets of mica right and and we used to take hikes in the mojave and and i had no idea what i wanted to major in but i um i was really nervous about it in fact and i got the ucla catalog with this like two inch thick catalog right phone book kind of thing and i started thumbing through it i i had the the university application and it had a space for major and i you know, I was kind of freaking out and I thought, well, I better look through this catalog. And so I start looking through it and and I kind of remember coming up to, you know, alpha, alphabetized. So I got to Earth and Space Sciences and um, and I started reading it and it's like, oh, I like hiking. I, I kind of like science. And oh, you get to take a summer field camp that I've never been to summer camp. That sounds really fun. <laughs> <laughs> So then I went to my, um, I went into my high school counselor, who I was always annoying, and I said, I, I'm thinking about, you know, putting down geology, but I'm super nervous about it. And he said, just put it down. The average person changes their major seven times. So, so I did, and that was it. I've I always had... knew that Micah was a gateway rock. <laughs> I know it is. It totally is. <laughs> We're constantly the, replacing that in the uh, intro lab. So uh, <laughs> it puts the sparkle into life, you know. Exactly. So. It's the geology fidget spinner. It is. <laughs> so it is. True. It's like I love that display down in our, you know, in our building with the with the huge meat cleaver through that enormous slab uh-huh. of mica. I know. I really want to get a hold of that. It's so know. Sad. It's behind glass. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, that's awesome. I always love it when people uh, have a deep-seated love of geology from early on, just from messing <laughs> around outside. Um, that's really cool. But um, you actually, so once you got your PhD, uh, you did a lot of sedimentology work, right? And then you sort of wound up on this paleoclimate kick. Yeah, and that, that kind of started in grad school unexpectedly because I, I was studying. I, I um, So I went to UCLA and, and my undergrad mentor there was Ray Ingersoll, who's a, a sedimentation and tectonics kind of guy. And he was a really excellent teacher and I loved his classes and I kept taking more. And that really sparked my interest in sedimentation and tectonics and working with someone named Bill Dickinson, who, who happened to have been Ray's advisor as well. Okay, so, so yeah, I was studying with Bill Dickinson. We were looking at, at the effects of tectonics and, and sedimentation, tectonics and sea level. Um, uh, and the more I studied these rocks that dated from the late Paleozoic, the more I realized that um, 
there was this climate signal. And what really clued me into it was the, as it turns out, the dust signal, because I was looking at um, essentially an ancient carbonate platform in southern Arizona. And I was measuring a section through the rocks and it should have been all carbonate because it was totally isolated from you know any, any rivers or anything. And yet I kept on coming to, I'd, I'd come to um, basically an exposure surface, a paleo exposure surface. That is a, um, a glacial low stand, basically a time when sea level fell below the top of the carbonate platform and exposed it. And I would find a bunch of silt like you know, a blanket-like deposit of silt. And then we would go back into the carbonates when sea level came back up again. And I thought, well, you know, this is, this is weird. And, and realized that it had to have been um, a sea level change, I mean, a, a climate change, right? And duh, of course, the, the sea level effect is just a sea level artifact of a fundamental climate change <laughs> between <laughs> glacial and interglacial, right? And so the, the more I got into it, the more I felt like climate was a real key. And, and it was also, I was, I was lucky to have a person on my committee um, there at Arizona, Judy Parrish, who, who was um, into kind of what we now call deep time climate. And so um, I kind of took off from there and, and climate became more and more interesting to me. So when you're in the field doing this, and you're, you find these layers, are these relatively thin or pretty massive? And what are some of the kind of measurements that you're taking to, to make these inferences? Yeah, that's a good question. When it depends. So, so for example, uh, the example I was just talking about in Southern Arizona of this carbonate platform, um, or another example that I've studied in the subsurface from the Permian Basin, an isolated um, it's called an atoll. It's, it's not really an atoll, but it's like an atoll in the sense that it's an isolated carbonate mound. Um, those dust deposits are, um, you, you find dust really throughout the carbonates, but then they, they change to essentially a siltstone or a mudstone that could be um, decimeters thick, Might, maybe centimeters, maybe decimeters thick. Um, but we can also look at the record of dust in, in what I would call pure dust deposits, what we call loess deposits, L-O-E-S-S. It's a, a German for loose. And um, they're well known on the planet from the recent past, from the Quaternary. Um, they're a little bit less known, but getting better known from deep time. And basically they're, they're massive siltstones. So they, they're, they're the beds that could be eight meters thick of an entirely structureless siltstone. Um, if, they're, if they truly fall out of, out, out of suspension in the atmosphere and accumulate it as, as a dust deposit. Um, and then there's the other extreme. And the other extreme would be a place like Japan. And so we've gone to study Paleozoic carbonates from Japan, which was basically, was truly an atoll in the late Paleozoic. And those are, you know, we have to dissolve um, 300 grams of material to be able to extract a measurable amount of dust. So there's this spectrum, right? So there's the, the carbonate platforms that are in epyrexes, that is they formed relatively close to a continent. Those deposits can, can be measured in the, um, actually measured as a dust or a siltstone, for example, that might be centimeters thick or even more. Um, to the other extreme being, being uh, true dust deposits that are massive siltstones with you know eight meter thick 
um, intervals that that fracture like a chunk of obsidian because they're so um, uh, homogeneous and basically isotropic, you know. Um, and then the 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 other extreme would be Japan, and we've studied um, a Paleozoic atoll, a late Paleozoic atoll um, in Japan. And what was amazing to me about that one is the first time, you know, Japan is pretty vegetated, so we're trying to get um, outcrops. And I remember when we were first doing our reconnaissance, we thought, okay, this road cut's going to be perfect because it's a road cut. We went to the road cut, and it was a wall of carbonate. And we couldn't find a bedding plane to take a strike and dip because, because when you think about it, a bedding plane is basically a a hiatus, right? A, a a moment, you know, a, a, a gap during which you accumulate impurities, right? And then that's what defines the bed later in the geologic record. And it was so far out in the middle of the, what we call the Panthalassic ocean, which is the paleo Pacific, like 10,000 kilometers from anywhere that it's so clean of impurities that there was just no bedding planes. Um, we ultimately were able to find another place where we could that, that basically the paleontologists had done enough work that we knew which way was up and what the dip of the beds was and so forth. And we had to dissolve these huge amounts of limestone um, in order to extract a measurable quantity of dust. But the dust is still there. And not only is it there, what's intriguing about that stuff is that it can, uh, we, we can, we find records of um, explosive volcanism. We find records of amazingly giant grains that meteorologically are bizarre because they're so far out in the middle of the ocean. And so when you say dust, what exactly mineralogically are we talking about? So you're yeah. dumping this carbonate away, but what's left and how do you know it's dust? Yeah, good question. So what we want to be able to say is we want to be able to say that we're actually measuring something that, that was deposited from the atmosphere, right? Mm-hmm. So so in the case of a limestone, first of all, we try to look at the paleogeography first and say, okay, can we make a case that this was, that there wasn't a a fluvial deltaic system coming in here and bringing, you know, bringing quartz and feldspar and so forth. Um, when we're in a place like that Japanese atoll or a big expanse of carbonate platform, you know, we, we can make a pretty good case. And But then, as you know, diagenesis can occur and so forth. So we take the limestone through um, a procedural extract, a, a sequential extraction. So we, we first get rid of the carbonate. Then we um, get rid of the organics. Oftentimes that's a combustion step because there, there can be kerogen, which is a really almost like tar-like organic that w- won't dissolve away very easily, but it will burn off. So we burn that off. Um, and then by doing that, we also end up oxidizing um, stuff like pyrite. And so um, then it comes out of the furnace red and then we take it through another process that essentially gets the red out, dissolves that. And, um, and then at the end of that, we're left with what we call the silicate mineral fraction. And then we examine that under the microscope to remove anything that might be authogenic like shirt or so forth. And so what we're aiming to get is really the detrital, what we call the detrital fraction, the stuff that would have fallen out of the atmosphere into this, into this limestone. Um, in the in the case of a of a marine unit like that, right, and and if it's truly just a a paleolus deposit, well, then it's a it's a big siltstone or mudstone. See, this is where science is super exciting, right? In her lab, she acid 
fire, right? It's <laughs> super. <laughs> why would? Why is not everybody a geologist? I that's, don't understand. It's, you know, it's earth, wind, and, and fire for sure. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And so you said that you have to dissolve sometimes pretty large quantities to get an amount of dust that you can process and work from. Yeah. Are we talking, you know, uh, kilograms or tens of kilograms? How much no, and how and long our, does it take to do this process? Yeah, that's a great question because it, it depends, as it turns out. So when we're looking at these um, carbonates that were that formed close to a, a continent, they're usually fairly dusty. <laughs> and so we can get away with dissolving maybe 10 grams or maybe 20 grams or 30 grams, somewhere in there. And, um, and it's, you know, we do some initial tests whenever we, we take samples from a new region. We do some initial tests to find out what's the minimum that let, let's look at kind of what we think is the cleanest um, example and the dirtiest, so to speak, example in this data set. And let's, um, find out kind of what what's the the minimum we have to uh, dissolve to get measurable quantities. And, and the reason I say the minimum is because you don't want to have to, um, if, you, if you are dissolving 100 grams and you only re really need to dissolve 10, you're, you're wasting a lot of chemicals and you're wasting a lot of effort, right? So, so we try to get hit the sweet spot to make sure that we're getting measurable amounts, they're going to vary sample to sample, um, but measurable amounts. And in the case of Japan, that turned out to be about at least 300 grams um, to get measurable amounts. Uh, what we end up doing is we'll, we'll get weight percents in the end, and that the, the smallest weight percent out of 300 grams was, you know, sometimes 0. 0.0001 um, weight wow. percent. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I talk, yeah. And talk about like needles and haystacks, right? <laughs> yeah, at times for those, that was an extreme example, you know, the, the Japan example. And then so once you have extracted this dust, what are some of the processes that you can do on it? Uh, some of the measurements that you can make to learn about the paleoclimate? Yeah, so, well, one of the things that we track is just how much are we getting out of that sample? Because we, we um, you know, we standardize the starting amount and then of course we measure each sample very carefully and so we get out initially a weight percent and ideally what we'd like to be able to do is be able to calculate a, um, a mean accumulation rate um, so to do that we also have to get into thinking about all right how what was the what was the depositional um, the, the rate of deposition of the carbonate, you know, so we can back out essentially a mean accumulation rate of dust because that's telling us something about, well, it's telling us the dustiness of the atmosphere at that time, whether it was a right. low dust atmosphere or a high dust atmosphere. So that's the first, you know, thing we do. And then um, another thing we do is we run the sample, the, the uh, dust extract, if it's from a carbonate or just the disaggregated sample, if it's from a loose deposit, through a particle size analyzer, and in my case, it's a it's a laser particle size analyzer, to measure the grain size of the dust. Um, so you want to know the mean accumulation rate. You want to know the grain size. You want to know the composition. All those things can play can can are very important with regard to the atmospheric effects of the dust on the climate. And then we also uh, try to look at the provenance of the dust or the source of the dust. From where was it blowing? Um, because that's, that gets really fun because then we can start to reconstruct atmospheric circulation. 
And to do that, we, we use two different ways in, in a general sense. We use geochemistry, well, I, I'll, I'll say three different ways, bulk rock geochemistry, isotope geochemistry, and or what we call detrital zircon geochronology. And we've done quite a lot of the latter, in fact. I mean, it helps when you know the people that run the zircon, <laughs> too, right? <laughs> <laughs> you still got to pay, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you do a lot of, you and your students do a lot of SEM work as well, right? Looking at the yeah, yeah. Yeah, we do. We've done, you know, and, and actually that we've done some really, I'm, I'm actually very excited about some stuff we've been doing on the, on the material from Japan, um, because we're actually seeing essentially uh, preserved volcanic glass from 300 million years ago. Oh, and wow. um, yeah, it's really, really cool. So, um, so yeah, we can do SEM work to look at both textures of grains and, and composition and also do the electron microprobe. Um, to get at things like composition and mineralogy and so forth. So we've, we've done that as well. I have to ask before we go on, since this is still in my mind, um, you know, you're blowing this dust around, but when you get these really large particles, how do they get there then? Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> so I, I have to tell a story from maybe 10 or 12 years ago when one of my, the first student who worked on some of the Japan samples um, so we had to, oh, John, you asked how long does it take, right? Okay, well, right. if we hit it with, um, sometimes it can be pretty quick. If the sample is small, and, and especially if we're hitting it with hydrochloric acid, it's not very strong. It's maybe one normal, sometimes two normal HCl. Um, and that can be, that can, that can take on the, on the order of days. Um, for the Japan samples, it can take on the order of many days to even a couple of weeks. If we're hitting it with buffered acetic acid because we wanna be really careful about the chemistry, if we're doing, you know, say isotope geochemistry or whatever, it can take six months to, to dissolve wow. one of Because it's like putting it in, it's like putting it in, you know, vinegar, right? But um, so normally we, yeah, we, we don't do that. Anyhow, um, uh, so yeah, the giant grains. So she was dissolving her samples, right? And she came up to my office with this beaker and she was swirling the residue in a beaker. And she said, you know, I think somebody's playing a trick on me. And she held up the beaker <laughs> and there are these sand grains in the stuff from Japan. In fact, not only sand grains, some of them were, oh man, they were verging on maybe five millimeters across kind of oh stuff, my right? Gosh. And I'm wow. like, oh my gosh, well, that's a bummer. You better go redo the sample, you know? And so, <laughs> so, and this, this happened to a few samples. So then she redid them, came back up to my office and, or, you know, I went down there, whatever it was. And it was like, oh my gosh, they're there again. You know, and we, then we started really investigating more and lo and behold it turns out that uh it was real they were they were really there and it was certain horizons so there's two different things going on we think now that we've looked at it more um in some cases these large particles were clearly chunks of um chunks that resulted from highly explosive volcanism Ooh. and um they were chunks of you know, andesites, they were chunks of country rock, they were angular, they were, they were volcanic, or they were of um, plutonic derivation, and they must have just been blown out. And what was interesting is that they had to have, 
been, uh, we could tell that they were differentiated compositionally and therefore they were coming not from an island arc, but from something that was involving continental crust. So that was really interesting too, because they had to go a long ways and be extremely explosive. But in addition to that, we saw, so we saw that that was clearly a volcanic component. So it was a record of volcanism, right? Explosive volcanism. And the other things that we were seeing were very rounded quartz grains that were on the order of say 125, 150 microns that again were clearly coming from a continental source, but had to be coming thousands and thousands of kilometers. And yet when you think about the settling velocity of a quartz grain that size, it's like, wait a minute, you know, (laughs) this doesn't make (laughs) sense, you know? And so now we're talking really, you know, we're getting into, um, meteorology, right? And how do you keep on re-lofting these grains up? And you have to call upon convective storms or something that are keeping these things bouncing back up into the atmosphere so that they can fly that far. And it's really kind of cool. So you've got a Paleozoic hot potato thing going yeah, on with yeah. the <laughs> Yeah, it's really, it's really neat, yeah. That's, I, I always love it when you can pinpoint, I mean, you know, we talk about this deep time and geologic time is so vast and you can pinpoint stuff like there was this storm 300 million years ago, you know? Yeah, yeah, like like another example is, actually comes from that the maroon lucite in Colorado. It's a loose deposit and it preserves these beautiful um, raindrops. And so I, I love to bring it to class because ah. I say to the students, I've got this slab about a centimeter thick. It's a siltstone slab, right? And on one surface, it's got raindrop imprints. And what I, I pass it around and I tell the students, okay, what do you see on this rock? And you know, it, they're shy at first. After a while, somebody says, because I say, what does it look like? Just tell me what your interpretation is knowing nothing about it. And finally, someone will say, well, it looks like raindrops. And it is, it's like, yeah, it is raindrops. So what you're seeing is a weather event. Who knows, yeah. an afternoon thunderstorm or whatever on the surface. And then when you look at the thickness, that centimeter thickness, which is a dust deposit, there you're seeing climate, right? That's you're see- awesome. You're seeing a place that basically accumulated dust that was accumulating dust over time. And then you're seeing a weather event preserved you know, on that one layer. I think more meteorology classes would benefit from this kind of show and tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's really amazing. And, you know, you mentioned uh, highly explosive volcanic activity, and that's one of the things that would make the, the Permian a special time, right? It's, there's a lot of interesting things going on that could give you these dust sources. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting things going on. Um, it's, it's really cool. I, I, the... Pennsylvania Permian, you know, preserves a, a really interesting time in Earth history. And and uh, is it okay if I read my T.C. Chamberlain quote? Of course. It's a it's a it's a century old T.C. Chamberlain, very famous geoscientist, um, taught at the University of Chicago, was was pretty um, instrumental in thinking about you know the the Quaternary glaciations and even about the role of of CO two in the atmosphere and so forth. And he has this great um, quote from his Earth History book from 1907, and he says, between a marvelous deployment of glaciation, a strangely dispersed deposition of salt and gypsum, an extraordinary development of red beds, a decided change in terrestrial vegetation, a great depletion of marine life, a remarkable shifting of geographic outlines, 
and a pronounced stage of crustal folding, the events of the Permian period constitute a climactric combination more than any other period since the Proterozoic. The Permian is the period of problems. <laughs> I, I love that quote because it brings in all these things, right? We, we had this massive ice house and this collapse of an ice house. And I, you know, I love to tell students in, in intro and, and even advanced levels that, you know, we, we think of our current planet as the norm, right? You know, we think, okay, well, this is, this is, this is what it is. This is what it always has been or whatever. And of course, as geologists, we know that's not the case. Um, but if you, but we, we, we live in, in what we call an ice house, which is a planet with large continental ice sheets. And it's not necessarily the norm at all in Earth history. And in fact, the, the last time that really happened was 300 million years ago during the Pennsylvania and Permian. And, um, and I think personally, it would have been a great time to make a lot of dust. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, you don't think of cold times being dusty, but I mean, that's exactly what they are, right? It is, yeah. And it's well documented from the Pleistocene record that glacials globally are dustier than interglacials. Which, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You've got a lot of, you know, the atmospheric moisture wrapped up in ice. And as we've talked about on here before, you know, cold places are really dry. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. So if you just sort of first principles say, okay, let's make the world colder. Well, then you're going to have an overall drier atmosphere. And, and then, you know, and then during glacials, you, you drop sea level you know, 120, 150 meters. So just on, you know, on many, like there's many causes for the, for the drier and therefore dustier atmosphere. Well, not just, so it, so it was drier, right? You've exposed car, I'm exposed um, uh, all around, you know, sea marginal areas, margin, marginal to the sea all around the world because sea level drops. And so you've got all that stuff exposed. And um, so, yeah, there's, there's, the potential to loft a lot more dust into the atmosphere. And that's what we see, that the glacials of the Pleistocene where the atmosphere was, was on the order of two to 20 times dustier than interglacial atmospheres. Well, and plus during the Permian, you've got Pangaea, so you've got this big supercontinent, which is definitely gonna affect the weather patterns of right. the time. Right, yeah, really good point. Yeah, so the, the supercontinent, so you, you make, and of course then the development of what's been dubbed the Pangean mega monsoon, right? The double-barreled monsoon. So this is really neat to think about these, you know, we've got a lot of rocks from the last ice age, which, I mean, we're still kind of in this, you know, interglacial period right now. So we've got a lot of those rocks and then to look as far back as the Permian at these rocks, but I mean, you just said mega monsoon. So we have monsoons on earth today too. So it's kind of a similar, but then you have to figure out how different it would be just with this one continent. Okay, so so I like to think of Pangaea as this, the Pac-Man continent, right? So I, that, I'm really dating myself at that point. Um, but, but if either of you, at least you guys might remember Pac-Man, right? The, the sort of oh, yeah. the circle with the bite out of it, right? So you've got um, essentially a, a big, pretty big continent in the north, northern hemisphere, pretty big continent in the southern hemisphere, and sort of a, a, a bite out of it being the paleo, what we call the Paleotethys Sea. 
Um, but the point is a big continent in the north and a big continent in the south. And so in the in this northern hemisphere summer, you develop a really intense low pressure cell over that northern supercontinent. And then you just reverse everything during the southern summer. And so that um, low pressure cell alternates between seasons and essentially pulls the ITCC, the, the intertropical convergence zone and, and all of the zonal patterns of circulation that we think of and distorts them um, so that you get seasonal westerlies and a, a, a basically a sway of that intertropical convergence zone and the, and the equatorial easterlies um, happening. So we've talked about some of the places that all of this dust that was kicked up ended up landing, uh, but I mean, you mentioned Japan, but where are some of the other big dust piles around the world that people could go find? So um, up to fairly recently, I would, I would usually finger Colorado as one of my favorite um, examples. And that goes back to a, a paper that was done in like 1989 by a, a USGS geologist named Sam Johnson. And he recognized a, an enormous dust deposit in a unit called the Maroon Formation. It's, it's near the Maroon Bells and in fact makes up the Maroon Bells near Vail, um, Colorado. Um, and you can go out there and essentially find a mountain of loess. And, you know, with a little bit of water reworking here and there, but with these, like I said, eight meter beds of massive siltstone um, to the tune of almost a thousand meters thick um, wow. of this dust. Yeah, so if you go to today's planet, the thickest pile of dust on the planet is generally considered to be the, um, the Chinese Loess Plateau. And that's um, certainly upwards of 100, 150 meters in places verging maybe on um, upwards of 250 or even close to 300, but um, nowhere near that maroon formation loss. And you can go to the four corners, the cut lower cutler beds, which are correlative to the maroon, and again, see hundreds of meters of, of dust. Um, and, and then now my favorite place to speak of would be here in Oklahoma. And so those of us who live here know that, that a, a good part of the state, fully half to maybe even two thirds of the western part of the state is all red at the surface. It's this vibrant red color. And um, you know, there's a few certifiable fluvial deposits, but um, by and large, if you go and, and start measuring sections in western Oklahoma, you're in just these piles and piles of red mudstone. And I've had several students now study these and, and we've come to the conclusion that they're largely paleolus deposits. So if, you, so if you were to drill the subsurface in the Anadarko Basin, and of course, as we know, there's something like 100,000 drill cores in Oklahoma, right? Um, there's about two kilometers of Permian in the Anadarko Basin, and the, the vast majority of that, I, I think, is dust deposits. And they, they, they extend up into Kansas, up as far north as, you know, the Dakotas and, and um, out towards the west. And, you know, if you reconstruct it, this was an enormous dust sink. The, the mid-continent western U.S. was an enormous dust sink during the late Paleozoic. This is that just have to do with our geography? Well, so we have, you know, to get so much dust, you have to have a source and you have to have a transport mechanism and you have to have a sink 
and you know that for the source to exist the climate has to be right in the dust sourcing region right you have to be able to be making kind of basically manufacturing dust in essence and you have to be emitting it the conditions have to be right to emit it right we can point to essentially the central Pangean mountains what would have been the the ancient Appalachians and so forth and no one knows of course how high those mountains were but you know it was it was at least in part continental collision so it was probably a fairly significant mountain belt and so we have a place to to manufacture a lot of the dust um, we've got winds to transport it as well as river systems that would have been transporting it and then we have this mid-continent region which was subsiding and which was commonly um, kind of semi-arid. You don't, you don't want hyper-aridity because the dust will just kind of skip along, but you want to stick it somehow. And you know, a good place to do that is in place like, places like ephemeral lakes and, and you know, ponds with a few inches of water or what, you know, whatever. Water is a good place to trap dust, right? Um, and we know that there were places like um, enclosed um, lakes and things like this. God, so basically like Oklahoma today, especially yeah. coming out of this drought. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. This is not, it's just this is a, not hard to, to imagine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, that just the, the same way that we saw the dust of the Dust Bowl, um, you know, it was the Paleozoic Dust Bowl here in Oklahoma. Yeah, just lots of cows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you've now that you're able to learn some of these things about the paleo climate, can that data feed back into things like climate modeling? Yes. Um, so I'm not a climate modeler, but I've worked <laughs> with some really excellent climate modelers and especially dust modelers. Um, and, you know, climate modeling gives us a way to extrapolate from these, these discrete data sets that we can collect via the geologic record and, uh, and discover or better understand climate processes and feedbacks. And, and um, you know, for example, I, um, Nick Heavens and Natalie Mahawald, um, Nick was one of Natalie's um, postdocs uh, several years ago at, at Cornell. They're both excellent um, climate modelers who, who specialize essentially in dust. And we've worked with them to do things like understand um, for example, the biogeochemical bioge feedbacks of dust, because there's a lot of iron in dust and there can be really massive carbon cycle um, implications of cycling high iron dust. Um, we've worked with, with Nick as well to pinpoint, um, well, by our provenance, by looking at, at the geochemistry and the detrital zircon geochronology of these dust deposits, we can say, all right, here's where we think the source was. And then we can say, okay, Nick, here's the source, you know, and, and he, he has then run um, different climate scenarios for the Permian to look at, okay, under what conditions, under which, which climate states, can we best replicate that that's the source and that's the sink? You see what I mean? And, and for example, under, under um, conditions of glaciating the Paleo Appalachians, dust emission is maximized, for example. Um, but it's also a way to hone climate models to help forecast future scenarios. So I work in deep time mostly, but you know a lot of climate modelers really focus on more recent times. And if you say hindcast the Miocene, which was uh, just a few million years ago, you know, time in the recent past when we really know the geography very well, we can pinpoint um, the geography and the, a lot of the other 
um, uh, basically um, baseline conditions really well, but it had higher CO2 today. And if you can replicate the climate that we've that we know from the geologic record, then you can hone. Uh, your climate model and basically have more confidence that you can reasonably forecast future climate. So it's this real um, iteration and integration of data and modeling that I think is is really powerful. And when, when we're talking about deep time pasts in particular, I think it becomes really um, exciting because you, you look at, again, going back to we think of our planet today, we think we kind of know what the earth can do. But when you when you look into deep time, you're essentially opening Earth's lab book to alternative Earth scenarios that are truly mind blowing. You know, it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, we had glaciers at the equator at sea level. How did that happen? Because that's supposed to be impossible, right? It's, you right. know, right? That was that was what was thought for a long time when people were saying, I see this geologic evidence that the, uh, there was glaciation, continental ice sheets that extended to sea level at the equator. And you know the first evidence for that dates back to the 40s and yet it was essentially poo-pooed first because we didn't really understand plate tectonics, right? So we didn't realize we were at the equator. But then it was poo-pooed because initial climate models said that was impossible because if you grow ice to below 30 degrees latitude, you go into a runaway ice house, right? And you cover the planet in ice and you would never get out of it. And then of course, we realized, no, you can get out of it, right? And it was, I love that uh, what I'm talking about, of course, is the snowball earth time, right? Mm -hmm. The Neoproterozoic. And I I love um, that, that whole story because it's like, all right, the data was there. And then the data was essentially swept away because the modeling said, no, that can't, can't happen. But then we realized, no, it can happen, and this is how it can happen. And now this is what we can learn from it. And wow, how, how mind-blowing is that? You know what I mean? Yep. All models so. are wrong. Some are useful. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very, you know, they are very useful, and it's very cool. And what, what I think is really neat is really iterating between the data and the models and the data and the models and, and the predictions that come from both sides to then hone what really was going on so that we can learn about it it's it's a really nice integration and i I love the idea of using this hindcast to sort of calibrate and what do we know about the physics and also try then once we have some confidence in this model run it through some of these other scenarios and find out that the planet was indeed a pretty scary place right (laughs) exactly right i mean a place you wouldn't recognize you know it's so funny to think of, you know, how much goes into, I mean, a three-day modeling forecast, right? And now you're trying to do it 300 million years ago when the atmosphere was a completely different beast and the continents were a completely different beast and how much we've learned about this just in the past, you know, 50 years or so is pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have to laugh because I'm thinking back on one of my first um, interactions with, with Nick um, Nick Evans, the climate modeler, and, and I said, well, Nick, I've got all these data points. You know, we've studied this dust in Arizona and in the Four Corners and in Oklahoma. And, in, you know, and I'm naming all these places all over the Western U.S. and mid-continent, right? And he looks at me and he said, <laughs> okay, so in my model, that's like one dot. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Oh, 
that was that was painful. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's been really um, exhilarating and fun to learn about you know the other side. Yeah. Th- there's uh, there's no Permian quarter degree GFS model. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And, you know, admittedly, sometimes the error bars are, you know, are are big. Right. And but it's it's still instructive to look at to look at what, you know, what are the um, what are the extremes? Right. What are the end members? Let's let's model it as a really warm greenhouse or let's model it as a really extreme ice house. And if, if we model those two scenarios, what do we get? And, you know, so that we can kind of get the boundaries. Right. It's. So we've gone that far in the last, you know, 50 years or something like that. But where do you think all of this is going in the next 10 years? How are oh does your stuff fit into <laughs> new climate models? Like, how? <laughs> what are these exciting questions that you think we could answer? Um, yeah, well, I can I can give my really biased um, view of it because it's uh, and then I can give sort of just a totally, you know, who knows. But anyway, I mean, I, I'm really partial to questions about ice and dust, right, as you know, Shannon. Yes. <laughs> so so how extensive was this glaciation of the late Paleozoic, the late, the, you know, 100 million years of Earth history that we had ice around? And, and then what's really fascinating to me about, in particular, that time period, it is our last, it's our most recent and our only example of an earth in transition between an ice house and a greenhouse. In other words, it's the last time that we've seen the collapse of an ice house on a vegetated planet, right? right. So if you, go, if you go deeper in time, then things really change because you have no vegetation. And then it's like, ah, you know, and then it gets harder and harder. But um, so, so how extensive was the glaciation? How extent, how dusty was the atmosphere? And what did those conditions do to life in particular? And, and I think that, I, you know, I like dust a lot. I've become more and more enamored with it because I feel like it is, um, uh, it's a really major component of the atmosphere that we're still learning a lot about. So, we, you know, we know a lot about CO2 right? We know what CO2 does, despite what some people will argue. <laughs> right? we, we, um, we know what CO2 does. We've actually known it for a lot longer than a lot of people would like to admit, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, but, the, but things about um, atmospheric aerosols and mineral aerosols, and you know, in particular that I'm interested, and as well as um, sulfate aerosols, and um, what, are the, what are the forcings and feedbacks that that come into play, both direct radiative forcing that can be both positive and negative, and then the feedbacks that happen. So we know that that dust is a carrier of nutrients, in particular iron. Iron is a key nutrient to um, primary producers. And you know, you seed the ocean with iron and you produce um, you produce um, photosynthesis, right? Which sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, and it's these, and and so as we move into a world that, frankly, is becoming, uh, you know, kind of scary, right? Because we're sort of right now we've been conducting this unintentional geoengineering of the planet, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And now the question is, are we going to have to intentionally geoengineer the planet? 
to kind of undo, to reverse some of our unintentional geoengineering. Right. And, uh, and these questions start to get into thinking about aerosols, right? About solar radiation management, about carbon removal. And those actually link to a lot of these things we've been talking about. Now they're scary, they're super scary. And they're, um, but nevertheless, they, people are talking about them. And I think we need to learn a lot more before we really start to play with fire, if you will. All right. Well, is there uh, any other final thoughts or anything you'd like to add? Not, not really. I, I guess we've covered some, um, we've covered some, some neat stuff. I, you know, the, the thing that I would like to, I guess, make a plug for is I like to say that the geologic record and especially the sedimentary record is our, is Earth's lab book. And it's, and it's, it's preserved for us and it's archived for us. Um, you know, accessible to us several billion years of alternative Earth scenarios that we can interrogate to, to think about what, what's the limit of what's possible on this planet. And, you know, what again, what we see today we think of as normal, but Earth has run some really mind-blowingly bizarre experiments and produced these planetary environments that if we landed on that planet at that time, we probably wouldn't recognize as Earth, right? But they teach us what's capable on the planet and it helps expand our imagination of what's possible on Earth, which admittedly could be frightening or reassuring, but, um, but it also teaches us uh, essentially what you know, if we if we do get into playing with fire, what can happen on the planet? And and it behooves us to study those states and to understand especially how life responded to those changes. Because, for example, the Permian also houses the most massive extinction by far in Earth history. Um, and so, you know, we we've got to understand what was going on. Well, Lynn, this was certainly a super fascinating topic, and I've already got about notes about five more shows that we can have you back to interview <laughs> <laughs> to talk about. So we certainly appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about the Permian and what exactly paleoclimate is, and um, I'm sure we're going to have you back on the show. Well, I'm sure you could tap into a lot of other people too, but um, you know, I, I like to I, lo- I like to at least sing the redeeming qualities of dust because it justifies some of my um uh i don't know my non-talents as a person Um. who actually keeps a a tidy (laughs) tidy desk and home and so forth so (laughs) well great we we appreciate you taking the time to join us oh thank you it's been really fun well shannon that definitely is a lot that i did not know about (laughs) dust (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. I'm sure she could keep talking about dust for quite some time, too, <laughs> to tell you even more that you don't know. Um, but that was a, a really great sort of look into paleoclimate. It seems to be a hot topic now. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yes, but I think we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> And this week's fun paper comes to us from listener Daryl, who sent this in some time ago. And this is actually a post written by an undergraduate researcher named Gina Yoon. 
so this is really cool. Um, I remember, I think I remember a long time ago, <laughs> we did a fun paper talking about fitness trackers and which one does the best job just tracking your actual, what they're supposed to do, you know, tracking your steps and everything like this. Um, but this is looking at fitness trackers and a few other things that are also doubling as sleep trackers. And so it's comparing 10 different sleep trackers and trying to see if, you know, they're doing a really good job, which one's the best. And she also compares it to one of these motion loggers that you would use in a sleep test. So a really high end, um, a high-end record of your sleep and to see which one works the best. Right. So with the, the fitness trackers previously, they did something like walk on a treadmill with a bunch of them on their arms right. and they knew exactly how many steps they took and so on. Uh, but here, like you said, it's sleep, which is a lot trickier to do because these professional systems, which I did not know are called polysomnographs. <laughs> yes. I like that a lot. <laughs> yes. Uh, they actually look at, you know, your brainwave patterns, blood levels, heart rate, breathing, eye movement, leg movement, all kinds of things to determine what of the five phases of sleep that you're in. So how can something with just an accelerometer strapped on your wrist hope to even come close to that system? <laughs> and they wondered how close you could actually get. Right. And it turns out, I don't know, it feels like not very close. Um, <laughs> that's kind of what I gathered. Um, in addition to the ones that you wear on your wrist, which is funny because she went to sleep with these five wristbands on, um, she also right. compared, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she also compared to um, the phone apps too. So they replaced three different phone apps, um, replaced on different phones beside her bed as well. So it was as well as two other devices that clipped to your pillow um, to try to tell you these things. And I thought that was interesting because she talks about how some of these monitors will tell you if you're in, you know, if you're awake or asleep, obviously, but if you're in deep sleep or, you know, REM sleep, and she says it's actually you have to have the brainwave monitors to be able to tell. So if something's trying to sell it to itself, tell sell it to you as we can tell you if you're in REM sleep or if it's deep sleep. It's actually a lie. I didn't know that either. Right. What I did find interesting is she's got a, a really cool chart here mm -hmm. that was made with D3, uh, which is JavaScript. And you can scroll over the different uh, dates and the different trackers and actually mouse over and see what they each said, whether she was awake, restless, light sleep, normal sleep, or REM sleep. Uh, what I thought was really interesting is that they sort of agreed. Yes. Um, yeah. The phones, when the phone, it seemed like the phones did the worst, actually, which that makes sense, right? Because it's not attached to you. Um, but all these right. awake times across all the different trackers, they line up really well. Yeah. And the, the Fitbit Ulta seemed to be one of the best matching, she mm -hmm. said. But the the Jawbone and the Microsoft didn't look like they did that bad either to me. No, they didn't. Uh, what I also find crazy is she's got some uh, crazy sleep patterns too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was that was just a, a different um, observation on my part. But it seems... Well, remember, undergraduate researcher. So that's, <laughs> that explains the, the going to sleep at 4 a.m. Uh, so true. And <laughs> sleeping till 10. Uh, those were the right. days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, hopefully this is just a time a time zone difference, but I'm I'm guessing you're probably right. These probably are really going to sleep at two and three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, uh, have you ever yep. used? I have a Fitbit. I don't I don't sleep with it though. It bothers me to have it on. Have you used yours to try to monitor your sleep? So when I wore a Fitbit, I did, and I thought it did okay. Uh, I have not been with the Apple Watch. I've always put it on the charger overnight, mm-hmm. though I'm more inclined now to start wearing it overnight and then putting it on the charger, you know, first thing in the morning when I am in the shower and then again in the evening when I'm sitting at the computer to try to make it uh, be charged enough to continue running overnight and during the day. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a little afraid with the Apple Watch that I'm going to, you know, roll over on my wrist and call somebody at <laughs> two in the morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that would be a definite... Um... As long as it's not me, I guess I don't care. So, yeah, <laughs> um, it was it was this was neat because this research group that she's working with at Brown University is trying to also develop their own app to sort of help you with sleeping and offering tips to how to sleep better and all this, which is sort of what I always found about these. Okay, so it shows me when I'm restless. What am I supposed to do about it? And it seems like this research group is trying to take that to the next step to say, hey, you're restless. This is happening, but here's some coaching agents to help you sleep better. Yes. And also she has a GitHub page. So ginayoon.github.io slash sleep comparison, which will be linked in the show notes, of course, uh, where she gives you the details on how they extracted the data from each of these devices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool too. I didn't realize that Fitbit, um, I actually spent some time on their developer page because I just didn't know that Fitbit would make that available to everybody. It's kind of cool. Yeah, so Fitbit, Jawbone, they all had APIs. Uh, Microsoft, it didn't seem too horrible. Uh, HelloSense, they said that their data export feature was not ready for use, so they <laughs> did some web scraping. Uh, I don't even know what that there, means. <laughs> there are ways to script these things up and get the data that you need. Ah, gotcha. Uh, but it was nice to have it all documented mm-hmm. in one spot, I thought. Yep, yep, that was cool. So I guess in conclusion, they said, well, the... The gold standard and the Fitbit Alta seem to be the closest together, which you can mm-hmm. tell from looking at the, the graphs. And we're getting there, but you're never going to be able to get the same accuracy with looking at accelerometer data as you can with a proper polysomnograph. But maybe we can get close enough to at least tell us useful things about our sleep patterns. Right, exactly. Or much cheaper hints to get better sleep as opposed to going through the whole sleep studies, which I know in one one of my friend's cases, she went through a sleep study that cost as much as her having a child. So these can be really expensive. <laughs> oh, they can. And yeah. you know, just the, the professional system is almost $1,000 without the software license. Right. So, so maybe it is worth taking a look at if you're having some troubled sleep. Um, and like John just said, the Fitbit Alta seemed to do a really good job. Right. And, you know, she does say these are just... 15 uh, there are 15 brands around she used 10 but there are over 500 options Uh, so (laughs) these seem to be some of the more popular ones though it's definitely worth taking a look at and trying to find some patterns in your sleep yes yes thanks daryl for that that was uh really interesting i always like these sort of comparisons of technology 
Oh, absolutely. So if you would like to send us your sleep patterns, whether you go to bed at three in the morning <laughs> or nine o'clock at night, like I do, uh, <laughs> or have any fun papers or suggestions for shows, we would love to hear them. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, if I could figure out my email at 3 a.m., I'd answer you because I'm awake. Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, and also we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And then we're also on the Slack swung dot rocks on the don't panic channel so come stop on by there hang out with us during the day and we do a lot of science on there it's pretty fun yeah and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science any opinions findings conclusions or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies